The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Great. Great to be here, Father. Actually, I'm not all that fine. I'm like, my voice is a little wobbly, a little warbly, and I apologize for that. I have my, my handy modernism cup here, compliments of uh, Bob and Alice and Meyer, and uh, I do have something in there, uh, actually chocolate milk, that I hope will uh, somehow alleviate the wobble in my voice and people won't find it too painful. Okay. But perhaps we'd better uh, <clears throat> keep the show a little shorter at this time, just so, uh, you know, I don't go... Uh, completely into uh, laryngitis. Okay. okay, Father, I'll try my best. The moment everyone's been waiting for, I guess. Let's see, what, <laughs> see what we can do. Okay. Um, well, Father, we do have some great emails and uh, current events that we wanted to touch on as well. But um, first email I would like to read tonight. Uh, a viewer wrote in and said that the... Okay, yes, this? Before we forget. Yes. Okay. Lest we forget. I ask, I want to congratulate you That's right. that this is essentially the fifth anniversary of your hosting the show. That's right, Father. So congratulations to you. Um, I really appreciate your perseverance in all this time. Um, you have a certain uh, fan base of your own right now, <laughs> I think, uh, with a recognizable face and name. You know, people appreciate what you do. I, I do. I, you know, God bless you for that. And um, I know we mentioned that uh, I would ask for prayers for some good folks at the end of the program. I want to make sure that we don't overlook that, though. So if I could just ask people to be praying for uh, those who are ill, Mike Hauer and Don Rowan, Don Rowan and Gene Crowley and John Sharp are all ill. Um, uh, not not all ill with COVID, although now people immediately assume that you have COVID, but that's not the case here. But there are people who are, are ill and suffering, and uh, there are many more than I've just named, too. But if you pray for them and the others, God knows who they are, and will reward you for your charity and bless them for it, too. And from the, the recently deceased, uh, <clears throat> uh, Dan, Dan Wall, uh, of the Wall family, young, is a young, youngish man, I would say, uh, uh, just passed away. Something, uh, please uh, keep him in your prayers, Dan Wall, and also um, locally here, one of our uh, longtime parishioners, Mr. Robert Gorey, who has been uh, a great help to us at the school, especially as a longtime scientist, a teacher of science, especially biology. Uh, Mr. Gorey, please pray for him and his and his uh, family, and also Jim Selway. And Jim Selway is the father of one of our priests, 
uh, Father Benjamin Selway. And uh, Jim died suddenly uh, over this past weekend. Uh, so please uh, be sure and keep him and his family in your prayers. Father Selway will be offering uh, his funeral mass. I offered mass the very, that very night, Sunday night, for him at Our Lady of Peace Chapel in Florida, in Boynton Beach, Florida. It was uh, consoling to be able to offer that mass for him that very day. And uh, also, uh, and I had just gotten the word when I was leaving St. Teresa of the Child Jesus Church in uh, Parma, in uh, the Cleveland area of Ohio, uh, to bring the pretty little chapels, you know, um, and uh, invite people living in those areas to look for them, to find them, and come back to practicing the traditional faith. But uh, in any case, I, uh, I want them to remember uh, Dan Wall and Robert Gorey and Jim Selway in their prayers, and to remember their families also, and pray for their, their comfort and consolation as well. Yes, absolutely, Father. Thanks for that. And there, of course, you mentioned there are many, many more as well. That we've well, before, but... Steve and Sijato. Don't forget Steve and Ray Sisiki and, and again, so many more. But it would be impossible to name all. We could do an entire hour-long program <clears throat> just mentioning the names of those who would benefit from the prayers and reward them by praying for their benefactors, too. So please do. And I thank you for that. Absolutely. Father, thank you for uh, having me here for the last five years. I appreciate it. It's been a tremendous blessing to be it's here a, with you every week. It's so. uh, quite a pleasure, Tom. Yes, great. Believe me, you're one of the few who would uh, uh, tolerate my long, long answers. <laughs> I don't know about that, Father. But, uh, okay, well, Father, let's um, get into some emails. We had one here. Um, it says, The Fatima prophecies, although approved, are not obligatory. <laughs> Why are the period of peace and the great monarch continually cited when there is no biblical reference for either one of these events? Mm -hmm. I would, I would <clears throat> infer from the question that the questioner is a Protestant because the Protestants have the principle sola scriptura mm -hmm. that <clears throat> uh, all that Christ really left us was the scriptures as the guide, guide to faith. <clears throat> and if it's not in the pages of sacred scripture, um, uh, even explicitly in the pages of sacred scripture, uh, then it is not worthy of belief, right? Uh, of course, the Catholic Church teaches that sacred scripture and sacred tradition are the pillars of divine revelation, um, and that um, actually they... Have, I would we could call it even a symbiotic relationship. The church existed before the first word of the first gospel was written down. Almost 10 years, the church existed before the first word of the first gospel was written down, at least in the, the, that we historically know of it. Uh, the gospel of St. Matthew. And um, yet the church was doing its work. The apostles were fulfilling Christ's command to preach the gospel, administer the sacraments, right, sanctify, to baptize, and, uh, and to consecrate his body and blood in the Blessed Sacrament and Holy Mass and so on. The church was doing this <clears throat> before the New Testament scriptures were even begun, let alone finished, you know. So um, it is simply not true to say that all that Christ left us was 
uh, the sacred scriptures. Uh, the church existed before any New Testament scripture was written. And when the New Testament scriptures were written, they were actually writing down what the apostles were preaching. So that the preaching of the apostles is part of Catholic tradition. So when tradition was written down and recorded um, in the four gospels we have, then we know that this is a case of, of sacred tradition giving, giving us the sacred scripture of the four gospels. So um, anyway, it is a false premise to say uh, that scripture alone contains the truth of God and that's all we have to go by right now. Because Christ promised the Holy Ghost and he promised uh, that what the Holy Ghost would do is keep us faithful to what Christ himself had taught. And um, this is sacred tradition, again, coming down through the centuries, the work of the Holy Ghost. So anyway, but the, the, the question concerning the uh, period of peace uh, mentioned at Fatima, to my knowledge, I, I've never seen the idea of the great monarch mentioned in connection with Fatima, or anything Our Lady said at Fatima, or anything for that matter that Our Lady said to, uh, to little Jacinta when she was hospitalized in Lisbon before her death. I don't recall any mention of a great monarch in, in that, so I'm not sure how that is mentioned in connection with Fatima there. Um, but it is true that when Lucia revealed what Our Lady had said in the apparition of July 1917, it's just as Our Lady said that there would be a period of peace granted. And uh, she said in the end her Immaculate Heart would triumph. She said that. And so those who receive the judgment of the Church that this is credible and worthy of belief, it's not part of public divine revelation. It's a private revelation, it's true. But the Church tells us there's nothing contrary to the faith in what was revealed here. And it is worthy of belief that it really is um, a message from heaven. So, certainly, Catholics do accept that. And uh, it doesn't mean they're heretics if they don't, but it does uh, uh, um, means that it is, well, exactly as the Church says, credible and worthy of belief, and it is in, in accord with the faith. Uh, the great monarch that uh, came up later on in prophecy from some various holy souls, who the Church recognizes as being holy souls, the prophecy of the great monarch, and uh, there are many other prophecies, about, like the three days of darkness and so on. <clears throat> and again, I mean, these are these are private revelations that the Church has uh, held somewhat favorably favorably in history, and uh, that there is nothing contrary to belief about it. If one chooses not to believe it, though, it's not as though he's denying a doctrine of faith, <clears throat> denying it. So the fact that it's mentioned repeatedly is simply because, again, people find it very credible and very hopeful. <clears throat> and they find nothing in that belief that is contrary to what we do know infallibly through the teaching of the faith itself. So, simple as that, really. Okay, fair enough. All right, uh, the next question, Father. We uh, just recently, this past week, were 
fortunate enough to have the sacrament of confirmation administered mm -hmm. here at Immaculate Conception. I know we had a lot of uh, our viewers tune in for the live stream of that. Um, but we actually had a, a question related uh, to that uh, sacrament in regards to the Holy Ghost. Um, one mm -hmm. of our viewers referenced the little booklet by Father Paul O'Sullivan. Um, it's titled The Holy Ghost, Our Greatest Friend. And she asked uh, essentially the question, Father, um, could you explain the difference of uh, the presence of the Holy Ghost in our souls versus the presence of the second person of the Blessed Trinity in our souls through the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist? What is the, the difference between the two? Well, the presence of the Holy Ghost is the presence of the Holy Ghost, right? Um, so I don't know that you can distinguish the one from the other necessarily. Um, the, remember in the gospel, especially in St. John chapter 6, our Lord talks about his body and blood being for our nourishment of body and soul. And um, that he was giving us his body and his blood. Those who listened to him say these words, uh, were first at first uncomfortable and then incredulous and actually walked away muttering, who can listen to this? This is a hard saying. And so there are even still now people in the world today who uh, say that, oh, this is a hard saying, who can listen to that? Accuse, accuse those who actually believe what our Lord said of being cannibals, you know, uh, if they think they're receiving the body and blood of Christ. <clears throat> uh, but unfortunately, those people don't have the intellectual integrity to walk away as the people did originally when they heard our Lord say these things. There are those who say they are believers in Christ and yet they deny these words of his. Sad, but true. But what our Lord was actually telling them there, we know, was that he was their sacrifice, that he would uh, give his body as even the Paschal Lamb, as St. John the a Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world. They should have thought in terms of their, of their Passover lamb, uh, their sacrifice and the shedding of his blood in, in which there is life. Right? <clears throat> and the need for uh, the Jews to partake of the sacrifices that they offered. Right? And this is how we do it, by receiving Holy Communion with our Lord. Um, our Lord as God is everywhere. As man he is in heaven, glorified at the right hand of the Father, as we say in the Creed, but he's also on earth in the Holy Eucharist. As God and man, he's present there. When we receive him, we receive him as God and man. As we say, the body and blood, soul and divinity of Christ Jesus is there. Because he's not dead, this is not dead flesh, this is living flesh. This is glorified, the glorified body of Christ in heaven and his blood. Uh, the reason why I mentioned that is our Lord said in conjunction with that, if someone receives him, obviously with faith and hope and love for him, that he, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the Son of God, would come with the Father and they would dwell within the soul of the person who receives him. So that divine indwelling was a very, very important part of the early Christians' devotion. They were absolutely convinced and thoroughly mindful of the idea of the divine indwelling, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost came together, the blessed trinity, the persons of God. 
came to them and actually dwelt within them. Uh, they were in the state of God's grace, his sanctifying grace, involved that very divine presence in their souls. That God had made a spiritual tabernacle of their souls. And uh, so many of the early martyrs, uh, you know, many of the early martyrs were young men in the military, the Roman military, and young women who were virgins. The virgin martyrs often of some of the very noblest families of Rome, Roman society, um, had such faith and hope and love for our Lord that they would lay down their lives uh, for him. Tremendous testimony of faith of the young virile soldier and the young lovely tender maiden, you know, both showing this love and this enormous courage that comes from love for God. And, um, but when they stood before the magistrates of the empire, they actually would say this, that I have God within me. I have God dwelling within me. God is dwelling by grace within my soul. I believe that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is within me. And, and some martyrs, I think it was St. Perpetua, was giving birth in prison and she was being mocked by the jailers saying, well, if you're, if you're you know, moved by this pain of giving birth to the child now, how are you going to conduct yourself when you're you know, dying in the Colosseum or put to death um, in a very cruel, you know, a, a painful way? And her answer was, well, right now I'm suffering as I must, but when I am giving my life for Christ, it will be Christ who will be suffering in me. He will suffer within me and he will suffer for me. And we have the example of uh, St. Lawrence, right? The deacon, uh, I think it was in the time of Diocletian, if I'm not mistaken, the last great persecution of the church. St. Lawrence, who was being on a, on a gridiron, on a grill, being grilled to death, right? Slowly, painfully, roasted to death over the fire. And here he was in the midst of these torments. And, and he actually says, you can turn me over. I'm, I'm actually cooked on this side, you know? I mean, what, what a cavalier thing to say when you're suffering these torments of death, where normal, uh, ordinary people would be howling in pain, you know? But the idea that Christ is within and he is the one who will take this suffering for me. Uh, courage, love, yes, but a very profound conviction of the divine presence within. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Where the Father and the Son are, as our Lord Jesus Christ said they would be, in the souls of those who receive him worthily, lovingly in this life, obviously the love between them, the Father and the Son, that is the, you might say, the personified love, I guess you could say that. You'd have to understand that in the right way, though. Between them, that personal love between them is the Holy Ghost, produced by the omnipotent will of the Father and the omnipotent will of the Son mutually in love. And so that love, the Holy Ghost, personally present, is always there where the Father and the Son are. And so this has to do with the indwelling of the Holy Ghost within the soul. And it is a real presence of God there. You know, St. Thomas Aquinas tells us that God is, we talked about this recently, naturally present in everything by, by God 
I mean, it is natural to God, as it were, to be present in his creation in certain ways, okay? And um, that God, by his knowledge, is present everywhere in creation because he knows everything. There is no thing without him knowing it. In fact, everything depends on his knowing it to be in the first place. <clears throat> and not only does God have the knowledge of everything, God has the will, the power over everything that exists. And it exists because he wills it into existence. Effortlessly, he has this infinitely powerful will to will it to exist and to give it what the philosophers would call like first act, that it exists. But also because everything that God wills into existence has that perfection of existence, that basic, basic perfection, uh, everything that exists also resembles God in a certain way. And that's the third way God is present in his essence, because everything that exists is an expression of his, his perfections. I mean, even dead matter has perfection of existence. I mean, that's, there's an infinite chasm between nothingness and somethingness, right, and existence. And God brings it into existence. And even dead matter has a certain vestige, as it were, of God insofar as it has existence. But living things have a similitude to God. They resemble him in a certain way. And, of course, human beings with intellect and will to know truth, love goodness, and to rejoice in what is beautiful, they have more than the vestige. They have more than similitude to God. They have the, the image of God in them, right? And by grace, you surpass all of those, all of those, presence, all forms of presence to a supernatural level. And that's what we mean by the indwelling of the Holy Ghost in the soul. And it is not only the Holy Ghost, of course, but the Holy Ghost comes to uh, increase the divine life in the soul of the Father and the Son. And, of course, the Holy Ghost himself. So uh, I don't know if that answers the question, but it, I thought... It might. <laughs> yeah, Father, these are, um, these are very beautiful, supernatural truths, uh, very fundamental truths of our religion. Why do they seem to be so little known today? You mentioned this was a very prominent part of, of the early Christians. It seems so little known today, so little discussed today, this divine um, indwelling, divine presence. Well, you mean not in the, in the Novus Ordo? Well, even, even in Because the, in the, mo the modernist point of view, I mean, it's, it's, it's even a question of whether a person experiences God within and whether that's... It, God in himself are identified, you know, because the divine presence of God within us is by grace. We're not identified with God. You don't become God, as it were, because of that divine presence. Presence, You just actually host God, your creator and your redeemer, by opening up your heart to receive him lovingly and willingly. I mean, the human, the human soul is the only thing in existence uh, in this creation that can exclude God. It can't exclude him by the natural ways that he's present, as it were, by his knowledge and his power and his essence. <clears throat> but that supernatural presence of God, the soul can reject him, has the power to reject him. And basically saying to God, get out of my soul. I don't want you here. No faith, no hope, no love, you know, uh, to basically expel God's grace from the soul. That's a tremendous, terrible power, 
to do that. But it also has the power to welcome God in the soul. And uh, by faith, and by hope, and by love, by charity. And that is, of course, a supernatural power that God gives us to have these virtues, to open our hearts, to receive him into our souls. Why is this seemingly been lost? Well, it's uh, completely falsified and adulterated by modernism, uh, which leads to pantheism, you know, almost, as I say, to identify the individual with the divine. Um, but um, I, I, I don't know. Uh, in the devotional liturgy, literature of the centuries, as things have passed by, I, it's, I guess has been de-emphasized or somehow put aside. But uh, we're coming to the part of human history now where we have to revive that sense of the Catholic people, uh, of this divine presence, Uh, which our Lord emphasized and which our Lord wanted so much. That's what he came for, right? He He came to make us personal tabernacles for him. And in heaven, when all the steel and brass and tabernacles of the world are all done away with, right? Uh, it is the human soul which will be the living tabernacle in heaven, which God will rejoice and which will rejoice in God. And uh, as, as it were, the, the vessels of divine life. So <clears throat> we need to revive that sense so that the, uh, you know, when the early Christians, uh, believing exactly what we believe today as traditional Catholics, uh, stand before the world and they they confront the hollowness, the emptiness of the world, which is so completely devoted, abandoned itself almost to the point of being possessed by infernal powers, you know, uh, that we stand very, very secure and very firm in our conviction of that divine life of grace within us, uh, which actually is the divine presence that we, we understand the significance of sanctifying grace. We rejoice in that, and we're, uh, we, we actually revel in it. And um, we, it's not that we boast of it, but it's like the pearl of great price. It's like finding the treasure buried in the field. You know, those who find these things go, sell everything they have to buy the field or buy the pearl. Um, in our case, though, we want to share that. Bonum est diffusivum sui, the good wants to share itself. That's why God created us. And if that goodness is within us, we will want to share that with others. We'll be driven uh, by divine charity to want others to have what we have, and that is the share in the divine life that begins even here in this life by grace. So we have to begin to speak of this. I wish parents would speak to their children about these things, talk about these things, when it comes to um, them going to confession, receiving forgiveness for sin, and opening the way for our Lord to come into their souls and, and in his grace and dwell within them. And when they receive our Lord in Holy Communion, I, that the children should be very mindful of these things. They have to grow up with these things. And, very convinced of them. Mm-hmm. And Father, I think um, something you've mentioned before is that even some traditional Catholics, when they 
when they pray, they kind of imagine their their prayers as going far, far away into the heavens, trying to reach God so so far away. Um, when in reality, if we are in the state of sanctifying grace, we have this divine presence, this divine life within ourselves. We can actually pray to God within our souls and our prayers. Well, that's what Saint Teresa of Avila did. Exactly that. Uh, I mean, she didn't conceive of, of meditation or mental prayers kind of like writing a message on a stone and tying it to a rock and trying to throw it, you know, hoping that, you know, an angel would carry it, catch it and take it up to God. She didn't think of it that way. She didn't think of like putting a prayer in a bottle and throwing it in the ocean, hoping that eventually, you know, God would find it there. Um, in her mental prayer, she actually turned to that divine presence of sanctifying grace within her. And there was a very intimate experience to pray uh, to God uh, with that knowledge of, of his presence there. Um, and she recommends that we pray very much the same way. Um, again, it's not that we think that we are God or identify ourselves with God, but that God has sought, you might say, a refuge, uh, a haven in our hearts, that God seeks that haven there, and uh, we welcome him there. We don't ignore him there. We don't even regard him merely as a guest. We regard him as our Lord. You know, He's present there, and he's deigned to come into us, into our hearts, and we're rejoicing at the fact that, you know, we're so honored that he is there, there with us. People who want to know more about that can read uh, some of the writings of St. Teresa of Avila. And uh, and learn more about about that. <clears throat> well, those are certainly again very beautiful truths, Father. I think there's, of course, much much more that could be said. I could ask many more questions. Um, but we did have another uh, topic that we really wanted to discuss tonight, and uh, that's from a viewer who asked about the uh, the Jesuit order being uh, suppressed within the church. Uh, mm -hmm. They asked why the church officially suppressed the Jesuit order by decree and uh, who and why they were allowed to return to the former position in the church and what were the circumstances of the situation of their expulsion. Well, that is a historical question, of course, and um, that's a question that has been held over from last week, I think, at least. Uh, so actually, I had a little fair warning about that one. Um, so I um, wanted to verify some things that I recalled. And uh, you know that um, the Jesuit order was established in the 1500s by St. Ignatius Loyola, right? Who had been a soldier who was wounded in battle and in his very difficult recovery. He never overcame the limp from the uh, damage done by the cannonball to his leg. Uh, but as a man twice the age of the students at the University of Paris, he enrolled there. He had undergone a great conversion. He said if he would so uh, valiantly serve an earthly monarch, an earthly lord, how much more should he valiantly give himself to the service of the King of Heaven and, and our Lord Jesus Christ, the King? And so he did exactly that. He established the Jesuit order, the Company of Jesus, or what we call the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits. The letters symbolizing that SJ after the name, right? And um, 
So rapidly did the order grow, and so, and it wasn't just a congregation, it was a religious order, it was solemn vows. <clears throat> and so uh, enthusiastically was it received by uh, very dedicated apostles. I mean, at that, at that time, St. Francis Xavier, for example, great missionary to the, to the East, to Asia, and so many other great souls were attracted to the, uh, the fervor, the example of fervor set by St. Ignatius Loyola. They signed on with the Jesuits, so that by the year 1600 or so, a man uh, named Francois-Marie Arouet, he was baptized by that name, the world knows him now as Voltaire, as you know. Voltaire was saying, if you want to destroy the church, you've got to start by destroying the Jesuits. How rapidly did this religious order become so important that even the avowed bitterest enemies of the church would say, you want to destroy the church, you've got to get past the Jesuits. <clears throat> and, um, of course, that was what uh, Voltaire was calling for. He was not an intelligent man, but he was extremely clever. And his entire uh, fame and and fortune was built upon being a satirist and making fun and mockery. Um, and he was mocking truth. And there were plenty of people at the time who thought this was very entertaining, you know, cheered him on and received him into their society, notice, notably enemies of the faith. Thought he was a great champion because his tongue was so sharp. Um, Voltaire would end his letters by saying, écarcer l'infâme. Écarcer l'infâme means to crush the wretched thing, meaning the church. Uh, so he knew what he was talking about. He said that if we allow even the memory of Christ or the memory of the church or the memory of Christianity to remain on the face of the earth, it will rise from the dead. It took, he had a lot of faith, you know, to think, to believe in the resurrection, even from the a mere memory. Um, but he hated what if he believed, he hated what he believed. Tragic, indeed. But anyway, uh, the, other, the Freemasons that arose and the enemies of the faith, now, there are those who say, well, Freemasonry began in the year 1717 with Ashmole in the, you know, library in, in Britain. But actually, the idea of Freemasonry and the intrigues against the church were going on before there was such a thing as before Freemasonry saw the light of day as an organization. Uh, the Socinian Society and all the rest, I mean, they've been going on. The Gnosticism had been going on with the Qatari, the Albigensians back in the 1200s. The church was facing this continually throughout her history. Enemies that wanted to, uh, wanted to su uh, suppress her. <clears throat> and so, um, you know, this was... Well, you know, you think Voltaire is saying, crush the wretch. You want to destroy the church, destroy the Jesuits first. But they were talking about destroying the church back then. Remember that the Freemasons in the early 1800s, uh, the Italian Freemasons, were actually saying then that you can't destroy the church, but you can infiltrate it. So between Voltaire and Nubius writing in the permanent instruction of the Alta Bendita of the early 1800s, there was a change in tactics among the enemies of the church, right? And the Freemasons of Italy 
struck upon the objective of infiltrating the church because they decided the church cannot be destroyed. It is immortal. We have to infiltrate it and turn it to our own purposes. But in any case, those who were of the mind of Voltaire actually took seriously what he had to say. And so they began to apply their intrigues against the Jesuits. They, they, they realized we have to crush the Jesuits before we can crush the church. So fast forward from 1600 to the middle 1700s. Yes, by that time, masonry was uh, up to its dirty work in England and in France. It was becoming, it was about to become illuminated in France, the Illuminati with Gnosticism. And uh, so on, in 19, in uh, rather 1759, you had the various kings, the Bourbon kings uh, in, in France. I mean, you had kings of Spain and kings of uh, Portugal and so on, most Christian kings, right? <clears throat> of course, by that time, England had gone off the route, morales, right, with Protestantism. Um, but uh, you had the most Christian kings, your Catholic kings of France and Spain and Portugal. And remember, they also had their colonies too. So the influence went throughout the world. But the prime minister of, of Portugal was a man named the Marquis de Pombal, Freemason. In fact, there's some evidence that the, the prime ministers or the ministers of France and Spain, as well as that, of uh, Portugal were all Masons, closest to the king. They had the ear of the king. And one by one throughout the, let's say, 15, 20 years after 19, uh, 1759, those uh, monarchs suppressed the Jesuits in their kingdoms and their colonies. And there are accounts of the Jesuits who actually uh, were the first missionaries in Southern California. And when I say Southern, I mean down the Baja Peninsula back then, because they were in Mexico and so. How they were just round, rounded, rounded up from their missions, rounded up at bayonet point by soldiers who were sent to take them away from their missions. They were loaded on ships, put in the cargo holds, uh, and then just dumped off the coast of Africa. Jesuit priests and brothers, missionaries, you know, treated this way. Um, many of them perished. Uh, some of them actually somehow were repatriated. Some came back to Italy. But wherever they were in, the, in these Christian realms, uh, so-called, uh, they had gone from being loved and admired to being scorned and even illegal. Uh, they had powerful enemies in <coughs> the Jansenists. Uh, the Jansenists, uh, who were the ones actually who were very, very instrumental in the French Revolution later, uh, is no accident that what happened in Bourbon, France, with the suppression and the expulsion of the Jesuits was going to be followed up by the French Revolution, turning against the, the king himself, overthrowing the monarchy, and so on. Just the hatred of Catholicism was behind it. Um, the, uh, the Jansenists, often, they were the legists, the, the lawyers, <laughs> who worked with, the, with the, the media, the press, as it was at the time. 
Um, sound familiar? Uh, and spreading lies against the church and hatred against the church and hatred against the monarchy. And so they were very powerful and very, very effective in France. They started by doing what Voltaire said they had to do, suppress the Jesuits. It was a very cruel, cruel thing. That's how the Franciscan missionaries came to uh, establish the missions of California under Father Junipero Serra. They were actually sent to replace the Jesuits and the missions from which the Jesuits had been expelled. So um, it was a very ugly thing. There was a, a pope who was pope in 1759. Well, actually, uh, actually, I can't say that. Uh, he actually was elected sometime later. He died in 1960. I'm sorry, I keep saying that. 1769. I think he had only been pope for about five years by the time of his death. Uh, it was Pope um, Clement Thirteenth. He was a great Pope. He was a great Pope. And one wonders why that he was not uh, canonized, for all he had to suffer. Um, he was the Pope who actually uh, gave ear to St. John Yudas' uh, uh, promotion for the devotion of the uh, Sacred Heart of Jesus, the Immaculate Heart of Mary. He gave to the Polish bishops the right for the national feast day of the Sacred Heart and began actually the whole process of that devotion becoming just a universal throughout the church, devotion to the Sacred Heart. That was just um, less than a century after the apparitions to St. Margaret Mary in France, right, in the 1680s. So um, Pope Clement XIII was a great pope and he was very devoted, but he was also very strong and the Masons were just using every ounce of pressure they could bring against him, demanding that he suppress the Jesuit, and he would not give in. He would not cave to them. And when, uh, I forget which, which king it was, maybe Portugal, set about suppressing them, and he warned him, or maybe it was the king of Spain, he warned him that he was flirting with excommunication. But the, the, the king went ahead with it anyway. And so, but that Pope would not flinch, despite all of the political pressure that was brought to bear on him. Uh, now, during his papacy, uh, Clement XIII had chosen a Franciscan friar to become a cardinal. That Franciscan friar was from a family called Ganganelli. That Franciscan friar, now a cardinal, became the the Pope who would succeed Clement XIII. He took the name Clement XIV, but he was not the same metal as his predecessor. He was a very weak and cowering individual who could be, who could be uh, flattered and could be threatened into submission. And the Masons knew that. The enemies of the church knew what kind of man he was, and they were insisting that he be the man who be the next Pope. And uh, it's interesting to note, I mentioned the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita of the early 1800s coming out of the Masonic Lodges, outlining their plan to infiltrate the church. They're, they're talking about uh, so gaining control by infiltrating the church and its convents and its seminaries and, you know, getting their men in the priesthood and getting their men in the episcopacy, getting their men to be named cardinals and finally getting 
you know, there are cardinals then electing the Pope, choosing the Pope. They specifically mention Ganganelli, the man who became Clement XIV. They mention him by name. They say that Alexander VI, for all his worldliness, would not have suited them because he was too loyal to the church. Ultimately, he was loyal to the church, despite all of his personal failings. But they single out Ganganelli, Clement XIV, as the ideal man they would want in the papacy again. I think they've got one. I think they've got him right now. I think his name is Francis. I think he took the name Francis. But um, they said Ganganelli could be controlled by flattery and by fear, threats. And when you look back at the history of Clement XIV, you see a man whose entire papacy was controlled by flattery of the world and also by threats of what happened would happen if he didn't go along with, with what they said. <clears throat> and this man suppressed the Jesuits in uh, 1773. He actually wrote the decree the year before and then signed it July 1st, 1773. And suddenly it wasn't just in the provinces of France or the, uh, Spain or, or Portugal that the Jesuits ceased to exist. It was throughout the entire church. The Catholic Church itself annihilated the Jesuits as a religious order. I mean, inconceivable. But, and in writing that decree of the suppression of the Jesuits, it's very telling. Because uh, if you go to it and you read it, you find something peculiar about it. Because he says, well, this is, you know, there are reasons why I'm doing this and um, this and that and nothing very compelling. And then he says, and reasons known only within our own heart. Well, there you go. Okay. What are those reasons? Those are the ones that really count, right? Reasons that he's not going to explain. But we know historically what those reasons were. We know the pressure he was under. I mean, we have the documents now to show what pressure he was under. So that's what he did. He suppressed the Jesuit. It was the first great blow that... Uh, the enemies of the church struck against, against it um, because the Jesuits were the great champions of the faith. They were the educators. They were the educators of Europe. And uh, they were the champions of the papacy, the, the, the office of, the, of, of St. Peter in the church, right? So um, I guess the, the uh, Masons figured if they could accomplish that, they could accomplish anything. And they went on to the next thing. Let's infiltrate the papacy and get our own pope in there now. And we know the kind of man we want. Um, the Jesuits, by the way, uh, well, you see what happened in the aftermath of the suppression of the Jesuits. You see, uh, the popes were um, hounded by the uh, monarchs. You see how the popes were hounded by, by uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. I mean, Pius VI, taken prisoner, right? Pius VII, held captive uh, by, by this upstart uh, Bonaparte. What did this do to the papacy to have a man like Clement XIV on the throne um, as, a, as a puppet of the Masons, you know? And the popes who followed suffered terribly because of what this man did. 
Finally, in 1814, um, the Jesuits were restored by Pope Pius VII. Uh, I mean, here's a pope who was elected uh, on the island San Giorgio Maggiore. Uh, I mean, I, I actually sat in the seat in choir there, where in the Benedictine Monastery there, where he was, he was sitting when he was elected the pope. Uh, he had to be elected there because, again, it was too dangerous to be out in the open. You know, Napoleon was prowling, you know, he wanted that control. Uh, but Pius VII uh, reinstated the Jesuits, and they reinstated the Jesuits pretty much according to the old lines of how they were organized. But, you know, it's as though they were never the same. It's as though they lost something. Now, you think of the, the Jesuits that had been before. You think of the, the Jesuit North American martyrs and the, the greatness of these men. You think of the greatness of the minds of these uh, educators in the 1600s and so on. But they, something went out of them. And when they were suppressed, they just didn't have, seem to have that fire anymore that made them so um, formidable adversaries of the enemies of the church. Now it seems that somehow they could be more, shall we say, ecumenical, more open, and more uh, amenable to the politics of the time, and uh, more willing to kind of kowtow to the monarchs and the, the nobles of the, of the time in their unbelief. Something different. Uh, there are various histories of the Jesuits that are written. Uh, I'm sure there are those who document all of this. But you can be sure that the Jesuits would never have been reinstated if they had been the same that they had been before. Uh, the enemies of the church would never have permitted it. Um, but if they permitted the Jesuits to be reinstated, it was because they saw they could work with them or the Jesuits would work with them, <laughs> right? Uh, and we see now what has become the Jesuit order. Right? Yeah. Like now the, practically the leaders of the revolutionaries, all the way up to Francis himself, right? The modern-day Ganganelli, right? Uh, by the way, the, the Encyclopedia Britannica has a very interesting uh, write-up on Ganganelli. I didn't know about this. I'm just looking at this since you brought this question to my attention. The 1876 Encyclopedia Britannica talks about Ganganelli, talks about Clement XIV, the Pope who suppressed the Jesuit. Interesting what they say here. <clears throat> no Pope has better merited the title of a virtuous man we love him. Or has given a more perfect example of integrity, unselfishness, and aversion to nepotism. Notwithstanding his monastic education, it's almost like saying in spite of his yeah. monastic education, he proved himself a statesman, a scholar, an amateur of physical science, and an accomplished man of the world. Now, that's an endorsement of a pope. By who? By hell? <laughs> yes, actually. Man of the world, right? As Pope Leo X 
indicates the manner in which the papacy might have been reconciled with the Renaissance had the Reformation never taken place. So Ganganelli exemplifies the type of pope which the modern world might have learned to accept if the movement towards free thought could, as Voltaire wished, have been confined to the aristocracy of intellect. So that's what the great contribution of, uh, of Clement XIV was, uh, that he could have accomplished this, something the aristocracy of the intellect confining free thought there. In both cases, the requisite condition was unattainable. Neither in the 16th nor in the 18th century has it been practicable to set bounds to the spirit of inquiry otherwise than by fire and sword. Ganganelli's successors have been driven into assuming a position analogous to that of Popes Paul IV and Pius V. He's, he's criticizing these popes, saying, the successors who came after Ganganelli have been compelled to adopt the position of these, these zealots for the faith, you know, Paul IV and Pius V. In the age of the Reformation, the estrangement between the secular and the spiritual authority, which Ganganelli strove to avert, is now irreparable, and his pontificate remains an exceptional episode in the general history of the papacy, and a proof how little the logical sequence of events can be modified by the virtues and abilities of an individual. The virtues and abilities of that individual were the virtues and abilities of Clement XIV, Ganganelli, the man of the world who wanted to somehow accommodate the church to the world. I mean, we see here the seeds of something. Yeah. We're, we're seeing the fruits of those seeds right here now. By the way, 1876, who was Pope in 1876? I can't call the top of my head, Father. Look at 1846. Masnai Ferretti took the name of Pope Pius IX. 1846. The Masons thought they had their man. They thought they had another Ganganelli. They thought they had, there was even rumor that he was a Mason, Pius IX, because he was so favorable. I mean, one of the first things he did was to free the mercenaries who had been trying to stir up civil war in the Papal States. He let him go, scot free. And uh, I mean, they're, they're, he, he listened to the Masons' demand to turn the government of the Papal States over to a layman, right? That he would no longer be, in a sense, the monarch Papal States. He would let this regent of his, a layman uh, named De Rossi, he would let him be the, the governor now. And what did the Masons do? They knifed him to death. They stabbed him to death on the very steps of the Quirinale Palace, um, practically right under Pope Pius IX's nose. This, uh, this made Pius IX stand up and take notice and realize he was not dealing with nice people. And he, it's like the scales fell from his eyes. And he saw that the Masons, the Socialists, the Communists, all the enemies of the Church were making common cause. 
And he became the inveterate enemy of the Masons and the Socialists and the Communists. And they hated him. They rejoiced at his election, but they soon learned that they had turned him from an ally, what they thought, into a great enemy. And an enemy who would not flinch, like another, almost like Clement the, the, the 14th, Clement the 13th, 13th. Clement the 13th. And so, I mean, everything they did, they, they tried everything they could to uh, every trick in the book and every dirty maneuver in the book. Garibaldi and the rest taking control of Rome and, and so on. Um, it's a long story. Pius IX was Pope for a long time, 1846 to 1878. And uh, he held on. If it weren't for a good sense of humor, I think it would have killed most other men. <laughs> just, just sheer grief and, 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 and worry and anxiety. Not Pius the Ninth, though. Um, so, in any case, um, but this statement here in the Encyclopedia Britannica was 1876, like right in the very heart of the reign of Pius the Ninth, saying, "Look, you know, um, you know, we had Ganganelli, Clement the Seventeenth, who was really working hand in glove uh, to accomplish our purposes here. Uh, what a great statesman! What a great man of the world!" Uh, and then it was all ruined. Well, they, of course, they saw Pius the Ninth then, you know, and that was one of the things that inspired them to say, oh, what a mess. Now look where we are right now under this reactionary pope who's so Catholic. He's just too Catholic for, for his own good or for our good, certainly. Anyway, I thought it was, it's kind of an interesting development, needless to say. It also shows that when it looks as though the enemies of the church have every reason to rejoice and the church has every reason to mourn that God has other plans, right? Mm -hmm. The transformation that came overcame Pius IX, stroke of grace. We've got to pray for that grace. We need those graces right here, right now. Mm -hmm. Well, Father, that certainly is all very interesting, interesting to see... Uh where it brings us today. Um, anything else you'd like to close with, Father? Well, there are certain things going on in our own country. We see the Supreme Court has rejected religious liberty as grounds for challenging the New York vaccine mandate. Yeah. Okay, I mean, the healthcare workers and others working for the state of New York have been ordered to be vaccinated or suffer grave penalties, uh, termination, or who knows what else, you know. And uh, they've appealed on religious grounds, right, their, their religious faith. And uh, they were, finally, this, this appeal went all the way up to the Supreme Court itself, where there are those who held this great hope that these wonderful conservatives, uh, Gorsuch and Coney Barrett and Kavanaugh, uh, together with Alito and uh, with Thomas, would carry the day, you know, five votes right there of the nine. And they would stand up for liberty in America. They would stand up for the Constitution. They didn't, okay? Uh, of all things, the Episcopalian Gorsuch voted with Alito and Thomas in favor of the religious exemption. They were standing for religious liberty here in America. But the Novus Ordo, and I stress that, 
the Novus Ordo psychophants, uh, Francis agents on the Supreme Court, the ones we, we were cheering on, although some of us were fearful that they're Novus Ordo, maybe Opus Dei, probably members of Opus Dei, they basically just kind of agents of Francis and the Francis line and his Novus Ordo bishops and their modernism and their liberalism, their leftism. And then once they got into the Supreme Court, despite the show of the uh, Democrats, right, uh, at, at their nomination hearings and all that, uh, you'd think it was the end of the world for them. If Kavanaugh got elected or Coney Barrett got chosen, you know, was approved for the Supreme Court. Uh, nonetheless, they, they uh, were advanced. And, you know, ultimately they did advance. They were named to the Supreme Court. And I must say, Tom, I'm no prophet, but I'm not lost either. You know, I recognize I'm no prophet, but I'm not a complete loss. And I had trepidations about them because we've seen this before. We've seen these conservative Novus Ordo Catholics get into positions of power in Congress, in the Senate, and they're, they're rhinos, you know. They stab in the back those who elected them. Um, at the first opportunity, they betray, in this case, our traditional Catholic morality and our, and our true uh, American you know, um, constitution and, and rule of law. It's as though they've gotten there with that in mind. And the, all of this show of, uh, of opposition to them. Well, I thought it was interesting. Uh, who was it um, who was telling the pro-deathers, the, the abortionists, don't be afraid of Brett Kavanaugh. Ultimately, he will decide it in our favor, Right? And she was telling them, the, the, uh, the, uh, those who were wailing away that, oh my goodness, Kavanaugh is going to be on the Supreme Court. We're lost. You know, he's going to decide against us. She was saying, no, no, I can reassure you. I can assure you he will not vote against you. And even now, people are saying, oh, the Supreme Court is considering Roe versus Wade and overturning abortion in America, at least by federal mandate, right? And we're being told, oh, we're almost there, just any minute now, you know, Roe versus Wade is going to be overturned by the Supreme Court. And I'm thinking, by whom? By Brett Kavanaugh? By Amy Coney Barrett? I don't know where they're coming from on this. It's so, it's so egregious what these uh, people have done in, in that they betrayed the trust of those who championed them and defended them, you know, uh, whom they should now be championing and defending as Americans. Uh, and de defending the Constitution and the rule of law in, here in America. I mean, what could be more fundamental than the rights of conscience and the rule of conscience against mandates? They were going to be ruled by mandates from a governor who wasn't even elected. She succeeded a disgraced Governor Cuomo, Hochul. She has the right to mandate these things. What you can be, to be stuck with something, to be injected with some experimental biological agents, she can mandate that to you? What kind of tyranny is that? And what kind of a decision is this? I thought it was interesting what they had to say here about this. And by the way, the writer of this article is Calvin Freiberger. I don't recognize the name, but I thought it was interesting. Calvin Freiberger is the author of this article. And here's what he says about this vote. He says, while Gorsuch 
has generally ruled more conservatively since then. Okay, he refers to another case here. Barrett and or Kavanaugh have previously been the deciding votes against the Supreme Court taking up reviews of COVID-19 vaccine mandates in Maine and Indiana, transgender restroom accommodation in Virginia, Title X funding of the abortion industry, a Catholic hospital's right to refuse gender transition procedures, and Christian business owners' right to refuse participation in same-sex ceremonies. These are the Novus Ordo conservative Catholics. This is what they've done so far. They've come out on the leftist side of all of those issues, one after another, bam, 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 right after another, consistently. I mean, they might as well get on the phone, call Francis and say, how do you want me to vote on this? Right? They're as leftist as he is. And this is what you've got. Now, they are agents of the Novus Ordo, and this is what the Novus Ordo is. I'm sorry, but I mean, for those who don't like it, it's what it is. It's what it's all about. And those who don't face it are, are not facing reality. This is what it's all about. This is what they're there to do, to, to uh, actually follow the party line of the leftists in the Novus Ordo hierarchy and be their tools there. That's how I see it. That's how I see it in any case. So he continues, this trend has compelled, get a load of this, this trend has compelled Gorsuch and Alito to take the unusual step of criticizing their colleagues for lacking the fortitude to resolve such issues and being unwilling to bear the criticism that taking a stand would elicit. So, um, Gorsuch and Alito, two judges in the Supreme Court, two justices, have publicly criticized them, uh, Coney Barrett and Kavanaugh, for a lack of fortitude, as though they know that this doesn't follow their con convictions, but they don't have the courage to stand up for what they believe in. Not, not just according to their faith, but even in terms of the principles of the country itself, of America itself, and applying the Constitution and the rule of law here. So, one who lacks fortitude is a coward, right? A turncoat, a turncoat, a traitor. Like uh, we might presume to say Clement the Fourteenth, you know. Sad to say, right? And remember what happened when the question of the election of 2020 came up? Remember how they dispatched that matter, right? They didn't, right? They didn't. And when the state of Texas appealed for a hearing about uh, the uh, just out, outright, uh, what should I say, corrupt votes coming from other states that certainly affected the state of Texas in terms of who was going to be its president, right? The Supreme Court ruled that there was no standing. No standing for the state of Texas to appeal. And they had multiple other states backing the state of Texas, too, and demanding to know that this was an honest vote. It was going to impose 
a presidency on them all. So this is what we're dealing with here. Uh, the problem, we look to these people and we, we think that they are going to rescue us. That's a big mistake. We have to pray. We have to get down on our knees and we have to pray to God and we have to make reparation for sins of mankind to stop sinning and we have to make reparation for the sins of mankind against God. We have to beg God for the grace uh, that is necessary. If the problem here really is, according to Delito, uh, Alito and, uh, and Gorsuch, if the problem with these two Nova Soto uh, agents, um, if that problem is the lack of fortitude, well, we have to realize fortitude is a virtue. And that comes from the grace, grace of God. And that's what we have to do. We have to beg God for the grace of fortitude, for those who uh, have the conviction. Um, because if they, if they claim to have the convictions that we do, and for that reason we support them and champion them, but they get into the positions of power and they lack the fortitude, then they're actually worse than out-and-out -out leftist uh, liberal um, so revolutionaries. Um, they're like uh, a fifth column, right? Or sleeper cells <laughs> waiting to uh, turn on us. So we have to beseech Almighty God. We have to pray to God earnestly that uh, his will be done. His design will here be, be done in this. Um, we have to stand with Christ the King and make no, no bones about it. I mean, no hesitation whatsoever. Be very firm in our insistence that Christ is king and that he will be king and uh, you know that we are at the service of his kingship absolutely we will not flinch we will not waver in other words we need to be like Clement the 13th we need to follow the example that he set we need to follow the example that Pius the 9th set Pius the 10th set and of course as it mentions here the Britannic article of course St. Pius the 5th our patron right those are the examples we must follow. All right. Father, thanks for being here so, tonight. Appreciate everything. Thank you for another great program. No, thank you, Tom. I uh, appreciate you thought you'd be celebrating your sixth anniversary sitting here during this show, I suppose. But uh, God bless you all, and uh, appreciate your, uh, you know, supporting the program. God yes, bless you all. Absolutely. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.